Ah, oh, man. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Thank you. What are they even cheering for? <laughs> you haven't even two, done any. Two guys on microphones. Yeah. On a screen. Welcome to the Carl Landon Record Club. We appreciate you for listening. A music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike. That's Mootloo. And you'll have a chance if, you, uh, if you're a new listener and you're in the Philadelphia area, you'll have a chance to see this podcast live in its first live incarnation on November 19th. 19th yep, that's right? right. That's right. Yep. At World Cafe Live. Mootloo's going to do a show a performance and in the middle of that performance there will be a live Carl Landry record club so if you want to come hang out watch Mootloo sing then watch us talk about music watch Mootloo do some covers of the music we talk about it'll be a lot of fun MootlooSounds.com is the best place to go for tickets and it's yeah, going to uh, be fun I'm excited yep. it was supposed to happen in the spring now it's going to happen in the fall mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the challenge will be I think we talked about it last time we'll just we have that much more music to you know, sort of sift through to figure out which songs we want to discuss. Although you probably have an idea already. But. No, I have not thought about it. No, it's two months away. Well, like <laughs> no, I already did the. I already did the thinking about it the first time we did this, and right. then and then you went and got COVID. So I, I I put it on my mental back burner. So we'll we'll do it again. But we'd love to see uh, see everyone out there and um, and hopefully uh, meet some people who who enjoy the pod. So we'd love to see it. They, it actually seems like if you listen to this podcast, you are a <laughs> This is like, you're a very particular kind of person. So yeah. it feels like somebody I w- would like to meet in person. A very specific kind of person likes this pod. So That's a good point. I All the feedback I get, the people I've met at shows, because I have met some of our listeners uh, on the road over the past year. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the people I've met at shows are the people that reach out to us. They just, they seem like just good folks and people who love music in a very deep way because i think that's our core audience like people who like to be challenged who you know who listen to every style genre i think it's kind of a reflection of our tastes yeah and you know the way that we've kind of stretched out i think i think people that listen seem to be enjoying stretching out in that way as well so what we do is we listen to we talk about two albums just about every pod. One is a listener suggestion if you want to send in a music an album that you love that you would love for us to to talk about for one reason or another. Do it in the Apple Podcast Reviews, give us five stars and put it uh, put the album in there and then or just go to carlandrewrecordclub.com. There's a link right there at the top and then we pick an album, Moot Lord I pick an album every week. I was actually so the object for this has been to, you know, suggest music and and share music the way that music recommendations used to happen. Just somebody telling you about it and you diving in. I was actually texting with our friend Jason, who works at Billboard, about Fugazi. He had listened to our Fugazi and Metallica episode about a different Fugazi album. And and I listened to it and we talked about it a bit. And I, I, I had mentioned, I don't really like them, Fugazi, like personally, but this podcast has allowed me, has like opened up my brain in a way that I can listen to an album that does not appeal to me sonically immediately. Like the yes. kind of music it is does not appeal, but I go in with the mindset of what is interesting about this and I'm always able to find something. And it it's like, it was weird. I was like, yeah, I'm not gonna listen to Fugazi like in the future really probably, but that was interesting to listen to. And it's just, it's opened my brain up in a different way. I couldn't agree with you more. There's so many records we've discussed that I know for a fact in the past, I, you know, I might've heard a track or two and that would've probably been it. Yep. You know, I wouldn't, it's it's almost like you develop this new skill to absorb music in a different kind of way. There's a music you love that hits you in an emotional way. You'll always come back to those records. But there's another way to listen where it's like you just said, well, you know, Maybe this isn't something that's right in my wheelhouse, but I can. You can always find something because if if it's connecting in some way, there there has to be something to it. There has right. to be somebody something, loves it. Yes, yeah, somebody loves it. So that means, and a lot of the bands we discuss, whether they're bigger bigger name acts or they they have more of a cult following, there's something that's resonating with people. And you can, if you give it a chance, you will probably find that thing. You just actually have to give it a chance. 
for sure. So let's hop into this week. This week too, we've been we've been just a hardcore fucking '90s kick over the last few <laughs> months. But but it seems to resonate, and it's given given our our similar ages, it it makes sense. So my album this week, I get to pick the album this week is Smashing Pumpkin Siamese Dream, released in 1993. And the listener album comes from Apple Podcast user Steve Barlow. It is Pearl Jam's Yield, which came out in '98. I remember being in college when that album came out. I remember seeing it for sale at, in, was I at Syracuse at that time? That doesn't seem to make sense because I think, oh yes, I would have been in Syracuse at that time. I remember seeing it at the record store on Marshall Street. Anyway, uh, he says, Steve says, answering the call, the gang sent out a Twitter message for albums. I'm keeping the five stars and sending a few albums that it would be fun to hear you guys talk about. He actually suggested B-52's Cosmic Thing Junk from M83, Z from My Morning Jacket, and Pearl Jam's Yield. So I uh, picked out Yield. And also I picked out Yield, a guy we have to have on the pod that we talked to, or that I mentioned having on before when we had talked about Radiohead is uh, Stephen Hyden, who is oh, yeah. a, a rock yeah. writer. And I, I know I, I had him on my old music pod once to talk about brand new actually, but he's got a, a Pearl Jam book out I'm now. Great to have him on. I mean, he's a... I think he's one of the more respected writers out there and someone who sort of kind of operates at his own pace, it seems like. You know, he's yeah, yeah. so tethered to mm-hmm. some of the norms of a lot of mainstream writers. I, I like writers who are a little little off the beaten path in a way. Yeah, he actually, the, the book comes out at the end of uh, September, but by the time you hear this, it'll probably be out. It's called uh, Long Road Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. Steve has this, this way of writing because I've read... Uh, two of his other books. I didn't read the Radiohead one. I read the one about band rivalries and the one about classic rock. And I think he his classic rock book I thought was really interesting because I don't really like the same kind of classic rock that he likes. And I still found the book to be incredibly interesting because he was writing about something that he really liked a lot. And I, I, I tend to really re- like reading reading what people enjoy about those things and that's what draws me in rather than hearing about the bands themselves, you know? Yeah, I think it's, when you say classic rock, (laughs) that encompasses so many things. I'm never quite clear. I think I have a general sense of what that is. Maybe it's informed by that branch of radio, but it can mean so many things at this point, right? And the timeline of it has shifted in some yeah. ways. So how do you define it anymore? Well, so it's called Twilight of the Gods is the book that he liked. I, I think that he is a big Springsteen guy. So there's a Springsteen, <laughs> a lot of Springsteen in there. There's a lot of Dylan in there. There's a lot of Pink Floyd. I'm trying to remember. There's Fish is actually in there a bit too. It Like he stayed away from hard classic rock, which is the stuff that... I would have, like he wrote this entire book about classic rock and I don't really remember any ACDC in there, no Guns N' Roses, no. So he- Sabbath, no Sabbath. uh, Trying to remember. I don't think there was a lot of Sabbath in there though I can't remember. But it was a a different sort of like section of the classic rock universe. You know, classic rock was basically invented, the phrase was invented by radio. And it, it, it originally sort of, it's funny, it depends like sort of where you grew up. Where we grew up, the classic rock on the radio was a lot of like Billy Joel and like Phil Collins and softer stuff for a while. And it's evolved over time to include, you know, the the harder stuff, the Ozzy and the Zeppelin and the um, Guns N' Roses at this point. So I, I guess I would just say like his, his affinity for Springsteen, his affinity for Dylan, those are two artists that I, I'm not a fan of really, uh, to listen to. I think they're both interesting, but I'm not a fan to listen to either, but I thought it was it was really interesting. And he had another book called that I read called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, <laughs> which is a book about the Oasis versus Blur uh, sort of- pop, the Brit yeah, rock kind of And thing. then uh, Beatles and Stones and like just uh, music rivalries that is really interesting, so. Why don't we, let's start with Smashing Pumpkins and, and do, well, we just talked all that about Pearl Jam. Why don't we talk about Pearl Jam and then we'll talk about Smashing cool.
So, Pearl Jam Yield. Now, I would put Pearl Jam in that category of other artists we've discussed in the past, like Tom Petty, Prince, Springsteen, in theory, if we were to really stretch out, this could be like, we could do multiple episodes of the different chapters of their career. They've been around for decades, iconic, have been written about constantly, covered constantly. Yeah. You could so, do an entire regular, we could do a weekly podcast about Pearl Jam. I'm sure there's one. There has to be at there least has one. To be. So, yeah. There has to be. So like those other bands, for our purposes, I'll do a little setup. Mm-hmm. Mostly things people probably already know, and then we can kind of get into this one. This record occupies an interesting place in their catalog because their fifth album, they were about eight years into it at this point. But I think it it probably went even further in cementing their status as a band that's had incredible longevity. I know some people consider them the great band, rock band of the 90s. I guess you could deliberate on that. Some would say Radiohead, but they're up there. You got to say yeah. they're up there. I mean, they're, we've I've used this phrase a lot, but they're one of the five to seven greatest American rock bands of all time. I mean, yeah, given their, they have to be. They, I mean, top five, I, I, I think you could probably make the argument if you felt like it, that they're, they're one. I, I don't know that I would agree, but the, they're certainly like in that conversation given their longevity and their popularity, you know? Absolutely. And a diehard, diehard live fan base to this day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But just to give a little backdrop, as most people know, formed oh, in Seattle, Washington. Project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in 1990. Current members Jeff Amen on basing, bass and backing vocals, Stone Gossard on rhythm and lead guitar, backing vocals, Mike McCready on lead guitar and backing vocals, and Eddie Vedder on lead guitar, uh, lead vocals and rhythm guitar. Those are the four original members that are still there from that have been there since day one. And then Matt Cameron since 1998. Now, he had worked with Pearl Jam early on but didn't become the full-time drummer until 98. And so you pretty much had this lineup for, with the exception of Matt Cameron there for 30 plus years. And Matt Cameron is coming up on about 24 years now. I should also mention a few other people who are sort of auxiliary members, most notably Boom Gaspar, Hmm. who has been playing keyboards, piano, and organ with them since 2002. And he's a fixture. If you've ever seen their live shows, he's always been there. A few times I've seen them. He's been there for 20 years. Also, since last year, Josh Klinghoffer, who plays guitar, drums, percussion, backing vocals, another auxiliary member. And then Rich Stuverud has actually filled in for Matt Cameron on some dates this year. Now, in the past, they had sort of a revolving cast of, of drummers early on. Dave Grusin on drums and percussion, 90 to 91. Matt Chamberlain on drums and percussion for a brief spell, 91. Dave Abru... Abruzis, I guess. I, I hope that's the right way to pronounce it. On drums there's all these, there's all these these names that <laughs> you see all the time. Yeah, these just, are recognizable names. You think you know how to say them until you have to say them on recording on a podcast. Right. Yeah. Abruzis. I think that. Yeah. Abruzis. <laughs> that sounds wrong. Actually. <laughs> um, let me let me find it. You you keep talking. I'll... Abruzis. Yeah. Maybe maybe clarify that. And then yeah. Jack Irons, who was the drummer on this record that we're discussing. So this band was effectively formed by Stone Gossard and Jeff Amen. They had been members of the legendary Seattle group Mother Love Bone, who tragically lost their lead singer, Andrew Wood, from a heroin overdose just days before their debut album, Apple, dropped in the summer of 1990. So on the, heel, on the heels of this sort of tragic end to Mother Love Bone, Gossard and Amen decided they wanted to form a new band. They recruited the guitarist Mike McCready, and at that time, Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron to just record a demo. Now, I'm going through things that people probably know, but it's still an interesting story when you look back on it. Now, through the future drummer Jack Irons, who's on this record, they were introduced to a 25-year-old surfer who at the time was living in San Diego named Eddie Vedder. Eddie wrote lyrics to the songs, overdubbed his vocals, and then was invited to join the band, and the rest, as they say, is history. Did you find the right pronunciation? Well, the problem is there is... <laughs> How do you know, depending on what you're reading? That's the problem, is that there seems to be a like a an official Italian pronunciation of it. Hold on. Let me find it. I'll play it for you. How to pronounce. Uh, You're doing the Google. Uh... Wait, hold on. No, I see it on, I see it on YouTube. Um, okay. And I just, I have to play it through my phone. So hold on. I'm not giving this person a free ad. No, we no, no, wanna, no, no. We do want to get this right. I, mean, I know. We do. We do. Here we go. 
Okay. To say more Italian vocabulary that many get wrong, so make sure to stay tuned to the channel. Oof. This means <laughs> what is this? from the Abruzzo region of Italy. Abruzzese. 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 That's how it is said in Italian. So you okay. can say it as Abruzzese. Abruzzese from Italian. Abruzzese. And now you know. There we go. Wow. That's the official word from... Uh, wait, it's now a very let's soothing see voice. Uh, <laughs> hold on. Wait. <laughs> Abruzzese. Dave Abruzzese. Um, What's going on, my fellow rock? Oh, jeez. It's freaking... Icon to be notified every time I put out a new video on my channel. Oh, shut up. Pearl Jam was a band who seemed to have trouble holding on to a drummer during the 90s. And during the decade, the band had five different drummers, including Dave Krusen, Matt Chamberlain, Dave Abruzzisi, Jack Iron. There we go. Dave Abruzzisi. So that it wasn't too far. Fun. Yeah, I'd rather pronounce it like the YouTube Italian guy, but you can do it however you want. Abruzzisi, Abruzzese. Abruzzese. So either way, but yeah, it, yeah. Uh, as, as uh, the, the gentleman there mentioned, a revolving yes. cast until yeah. they, Sorry. and again, on this record, it was Jack Iron. So, so tragically, Mother Love Bone ends after Andrew Wood passed away of a heroin overdose. So Gossard and Amen looking put a new band together. They, they put together Mike McCready and Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron. Jack Irons introduced them to Eddie Vedder, who records vocals, adds lyrics, and again, the rest, as they say, is history. Now, the band was initially named Mookie Blaylock after mm -hmm. the former basketball player. Jeff Ament was a huge fan of Mookie Blaylock. And even once they changed their name to Pearl Jam, the album title 10, the debut, was a tribute to Blaylock because that was his jersey number. So, right. A very 90s basketball player, by the way. Just yeah. Like, like uh, Mookie Blaylock, Stacey Ogman. Uh, oh, was yeah. on the same team. Just one of those players where there's, I think there's some tweet that it always makes me laugh when I see it. It's just something like dudes will just sit there for hours naming old baseball and basketball players <laughs> or something. And, and it's, it's the truth. You, you will do it. And there's just like a certain level of player that takes you to a certain time for baseball yeah. players. For me, it's thinking about their baseball card. Right, like right. Um, the early '90s baseball cards, like Jerome Walton and Todd Van Poppel, and like all these <laughs> players that you remember from that era. I don't know what it is about basketball, but that like there's something about Mookie Blaylock that speaks to a certain time. Stephon Marbury, same time, right? I mean, same general general time. So. That '90s era, and then it got me thinking the Phillies. There's a very particular Pete Incavilia. Yes, yes. You know, is, uh, yep. Dave Hollins. Yep, yep. You know. Yeah, it's very uh, easy to name the Dykstras and Daltons, but it, for some reason it it hits more by naming those guys. Uh, those about are the Jim Eisenreich. Guys. Yes. You know, yeah. those guys. For sure. Yep. Anyway, that we're wild, wild. That wild and wacky 93 team. Really off thing. track here. Really, <laughs> really off track. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> this is a very tangent-heavy episode. Yeah, yeah. So right. uh, recorded the, they recorded their debut album, 10, in early 91. It wasn't actually released until late summer of 91 in, in August of that year. Didn't really start to become a major commercial success until early 92 when Nirvana essentially bursted open the floodgates for grunge and alternative music on the radio. From there, massive radio and video hits with Jeremy, even Flow, Alive. It's hard if you're around at that time and you were paying any attention to popular culture, it was impossible not to know this band. I mean, even if you weren't that into music, you knew them, right? I mean, they yeah. mm -hmm. transcended in that kind of way. Now, starting with the follow-up verses in 93, they began to sort of change their approach to marketing themselves. They stopped releasing singles and videos. More importantly, they began their battles with Ticketmaster. So on the spring 94 tour behind verses, they started playing less conventional venues. They even played some smaller college arenas. They ultimately canceled their summer tour that year, basically as a result of being un unable to keep the tickets below $20 due to Ticketmaster effectively pressuring promoters to raise prices. This got me thinking about Fugazi, because you mentioned them earlier. Yep. And I know Eddie Vedder is a huge fan of Fugazi. Oh, I didn't know that. And their thing is, or was, that they wanted to keep their ticket prices at $5, then eventually $10, no more, no, no more than that. And Pearl Jam had a similar thing. They wanted to keep the ticket prices reasonable. You have to think about it. This time, to make this kind of move for a band of their magnitude was a gutsy move. Uh Mm -hmm. Very courageous because they had a lot to lose by doing this. Now, as it worked out, they took it a step further. They filed suit against Ticketmaster, 
with the Justice Department for unfair business practices. Ultimately, the Justice Department ruled in favor of Ticketmaster. But I think this decision to to fight to keep the prices reasonable, to make it an accessible, affordable experience to come see their shows alongside with what they were doing musically, I think endeared them to legions of fans. I mm-hmm. think it I agree. forever cemented the status of this band as a band who, you know, cared about those kind of things, cared about their fans and wasn't really going to be tethered or beholden to the sort of corporate structure of things. I think that kind of thing goes a long way and that kind of legacy lasts in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they, they found a, a place not only musically, but like culturally within musically, like they, they stood for something, you know, and it, <laughs> I, even as somebody who's not like a, a big fan of them, it definitely seems genuine, you know, like they're, oh, yeah. uh, all this stuff seems genuine. And I don't think it always does with, with every artist, but it does with them. And I think it, t- we had a conversation recently about the now exorbitant ticket prices, which mm-hmm. there's a the theory of you go by what the market dictates. But I think they're an example of how, no, you, you don't necessarily have to do that. And they took that fight as far as they possibly could. Right. And uh, I, I think that means a lot to the fans when you have a band that that says to the audience, like, we value your being a part of this process. Yep, you, you for know, sure. We don't want you to, you don't have to break the bank to come see us play. I think just that sends such a powerful message. Mm-hmm. Now, on the record side, that record was followed, versus followed with Vitology, another multi-platinum success in 94. Then No Code came in 96. Now, No Code was a little more of an experimental album in nature. They were, I really appreciate the fact that they were trying to kind of push the envelope beyond their core sound. And I think they've done that throughout their career. That record, however, for a short period of time, seemed to at least musically alienate portions of their bass, didn't have the same chart success as the previous few records. But sometimes you got to take that chance. You, you know, you don't want to keep doing the same thing. And when you When you change your direction musically, sometimes this is the byproduct. Now, Yield was a record that followed in 98, the one we're discussing. I think in a way that kind of got them back to their core sound in some way, albeit, in my opinion, pretty still far removed from 10, but still a different sound, but back a little more to that 70s rock, hard rock kind of post-punk sound that I think their music kind of operates or exists within that sort of musical space. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the most notable thing about this record is how far each way it goes. Like, I, I think it leans into the punk side of things as hard as they probably ever had. But then there's softer, sort of more heartland rock sounds on this album that I think are really interesting to be on the same same album as as the the harder, faster, more punk sounding songs. I I think even the more the more punk sounding songs, he almost sounds like. Like he's not imitating, but he's in the same vocal space as like Johnny Rotten sometimes, right, I think, on right. some of those songs, you know, Spe- like specifically singing that way, which I think is pretty interesting considering where they came from. And that's a good point. I appreciate the range they cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of 10, now 10 to me, I love that album. That's a masterpiece. That's a record I'll always revisit. I still am partial to that album over this one. I just think 10 song for song is just so undeniable uh, and still holds up 30, 30 plus years later. But on the other hand, this record covers a wider range uh, uh, stylistically, sonically, even like you said, what Eddie Vedder does vocally, he stretches out more. It shows more of his versatility. Now, in the years since this record, again, pretty obvious, but they released six more albums. They are undeniably rock icons, perennial arena amphitheater band. I've seen them a few times and... I mean, Eddie Vedder's connection to the audience is just something to behold. Uh, I recall whether I've seen them at a big amphitheater or an arena, there are just moments in the show where it feels like the entire arena is singing full voice, word for word, note for note with what they're doing. Have you, have you I imagine you've seen them at some point. Over so I only, I've only seen them once. I, as I said, I'm just, I'm not like specifically a fan. They're obviously a great live band. I think when you are able to make 
your career based around the live show and tour as much as they have, you see so many of the same people over and over again that you begin to have this feeling of you know exactly how they're going to react and what they're going to like. And they sort of like, there's a mutual trust in how that goes. It, it actually, the only thing similar that I've ever felt is with the rights Ricky Sanchez, we've had so many longtime listeners and we've been a certain way for a certain amount of time. You sort of have this gut feeling that you know how people are gonna react to everything you say. And it's part of the fun, right? Like it's part of the fun to know, to, to be on the same ride together, to not have a script for it, but know that everybody is in the, a similar mental place to get from point A to point B. And I think that they as a live band have put themselves in position to just know their fans in a way that most bands do not. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And I think what you described there is a perfect breakdown of what builds band slash brand loyalty. Mm -hmm. When someone you know locks into something or absorbs something in such a way that it's they seek out that experience because it makes them feel connected to something or to a community. Whether you're talking about like the Ricky or or a band of this size. You know, people look forward to that experience because they, in, in some way, like, it's interesting. They do kind of know what they're in for, or they know what to expect, or they anticipate a certain type of experience that they've already had before. And the way that familiarity is kind of creates that special like bond between the band and the artist. And you're right, they have that. And I do have to say, the band they're they're a great band. They have incredible musical chemistry, but above above and beyond that, I have to say. Eddie Vedder's presence on stage, uh, he's like the quintessential rock star, especially when you want to say 90s rock star, but he's transcended that. Yeah, for sure. The the way he's able to, and it doesn't seem forced or contrived at all. He's just being himself and, you know, he's up there swigging wine and just losing himself in the music. And it's just, he's just magnetic when you watch him up there and you feel that connection that he has with the audience. It's just I've I've seldom seen that type of impact for a frontman, um, especially when you're playing big arenas and amphitheaters. It's not always easy. It's, you have to get past that feeling of feeling detached from people, yep. and he almost makes it feel like it's intimate. So he's just I think an incredible performer. So, Yield was produced by Brendan O'Brien, who had also produced Versus, Vitology, and No Code. Now this album was a little bit of a return to a more collective, collaborative approach than their previous few records. They did a lot of rehearsing before the recording. Stone Gossard has talked about how they spent a lot of time honing the demo so that when they got in the studio and it was time to get keeper takes, they just had that chemistry. They were so dialed in. I'm going to read a quote from Jack Iron, just kind of giving some perspective on the, the process of this record. He said, we didn't put any time limit on it. It was like when this record's done, we call it a record. We took time out. We took time to come up with ideal sounds and feel for every song so that each had its own identity. We would cut a track and go back and listen to it and openly discuss it. That's a that's a powerful statement. I think that can apply to a lot of artists. Sometimes when you're making a record in the context of feeling like you're up against a hard deadline, mm -hmm. that's when compromises can happen. If you can go into it feeling like this is done when it's done, this is done when it's right, uh, that's when you get the best results. Sometimes when there are other forces outside of the music dictating when it should be done, it's difficult to get to that place, to that just even psychologically, that level of comfort. So it's cool in a way that they were able to just sort of take their time with this. And I, I do think they made something pretty special. Again, hard for me to, I still have to give the edge to 10 as a record, <laughs> as a record overall. But I think this just shows their artistic growth and their progression. You know, well, they're and, so different too, and it yeah. sounds like they're trying to accomplish different things. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I, ten is pretty unassailable in the the same way that Nevermind or the Black Album or like there are some out al there's some albums where like just beginning to end the songs are so good and the the message is so coherent that it, it's hard to top. But that that's, I think, what makes it even more interesting when a band strays from doing that to do something else, which, you know, to, to talk about those other two bands, I think, I think Nirvana did on In Utero, definitely strayed. And then who knows what would have happened after that. And then Metallica didn't 
right away. Metallica did load and then reload, but then eventually did Saint Anger and came, you know, and to uh, when you when you do those things, you're taking chances, right? Like you're you're banking on the fact that your audience will go with you on a journey and doesn't just want more of the same stuff. And I think that's you know brave as an artist to do that. Yeah, and we were talking about David Bowie uh, a few episodes back. Like he was an artist that I think set that precedent that he was always going to push the envelope. I think some artists are, in a strange way, given more latitude from their fans to do that. And for some artists, if they're so closely identified with a set of songs or a sound, it's actually more of a risk to take those kind of chances. And it seemed like with No Code, the record before this, that happened to some extent with this band. So this this record kind of split the difference. They were still well beyond their core sound, but got it back to some cornerstones that I think maybe help reconnect to maybe some of those listeners that they had lost temporarily mm-hmm. with no code or who had tuned out. So I'll go through a few song highlights here. Now, this was a record. I didn't know this record top to bottom, but I knew a few of the songs. Wishlist was the one that I that I knew before. Probably one of my favorite songs of theirs. It's one of those songs where the entire song is a series of hooks. Yeah, you know, it's not the core. It's not the standard construction verse, pre-chorus, chorus. The whole song is a series of hooks. I love the understated vocal from Eddie Vedder on this. He's probably best known for the more aggressive or intense side of his voice. That that sort of very specific sort of attack that he has in his voice. But actually. When he lays back and sings easier, you really it really spotlights that rich baritone that he has that's unmistakably him. I, I, mm-hmm. And then when I think about Eddie Vedder, I realize this. He's a true original. He, you know, he's the archetype of something that was then imitated over and over and over and again and diluted. And many of the imitations aren't very good. But you look at him and he's the genuine article that just led to so many other people who tried to sort of follow that style. Yeah, for sure. That when you think about like 30 years of, of rock singers after really Vetter and Cobain, right. just half of them sound like one and then the other half sound like the other. Even when I listen to rock bands now, you know, uh, when I even the Seether is this band that's been a big rock band for like, you know, 20 years now. And they obviously just grew up on Nirvana. Like the guy idolized Nirvana or whatever. And then you listen to a band like Shinedown or something and you're like, oh, well, they listen to Pearl Jam. It's just like, you can you can almost break down current <laughs> popular rock bands into, and I don't mean that dismissively to those bands, like you're influenced by what you're influenced by. But, but yes, Vetter was the first one to sound like he sounds. Right, true original. And it's interesting, you mentioned Cobain and, and Vetter. That their impact on radio is so seismic yeah. that all those other bands you're talking about, they also get on the radio. Yep, yep. Because there's always a place for it on mm-hmm. rock radio. There, It's something that people recognize now, even if they don't think about it consciously. So yeah, he set up a whole style, but it's interesting to listen to him and, and also to see him stretch out and try different things, but he is a true pioneer of a very particular style of singing. Also on this track, I, and throughout the record, I like the sparse production uh they didn't over inundate the tracks with too much sound. It's not as dense, for example, as some of the recordings on, on ten. This one is kind of a sparse production, kind of builds up here and there. Really nice guitar work throughout this album. That's kind of, at times, almost has that chiming melodic sound. At other times, it's heavier. Mm-hmm. But uh, Stone Gossard and Mike McCready, uh, as a guitar tandem, you'd be hard pressed to find two guys that, I think, work work in the same way or work as well as they do together there's just a sound that they've created playing together sometimes it's it's sort of that perfect combination of rhythm and lead playing mm-hmm. and it almost becomes a whole greater than the sum it's like one broad pearl jam sound you know? yep yep so another tune that i would spotlight or that stood out to me was low light
Pretty good yeah. tune. Yeah. That's a bit of a departure for them. And it's sort of a nice laid back acoustic groove. You kind of have these three part harmonies that come in and out. At first listen, I wouldn't say I wouldn't even think this was a Pearl Jam song, except for the fact that Eddie Vedder is so unmistakable. I also like that the lyric has this sort of almost poetic, mysterious quality. You know, some lyrics you it's hard to ascertain what's exactly being said there, mm-hmm. but there's something about the the words and the way they sound locked in with the melody and the composition that just seems right. So this was one of your uh, highlights? Yeah, I, I love when songs are like almost ballads that right. aren't quite ballads and that that's sort of where this song sits. It uh, I've, I've mentioned that before, just like where a song is slower and vibier, but is not a ballad. It doesn't sound like a ballad to me. I love this song. It actually reminds me of... Do you ever hear Vedder's cover of that song, Hard Sun? I forget what. Not sure if I've heard that. Hold on. It sounds very similar. I'll just play it. It's coming. When I walk beside her, I am the better man. When I look to leave her, I always stagger back again Once I built an ivory tower So I could worship from above When I climbed down to be set free She took me in again There's a big, a big hot sun That's nice. Yeah. So Who's that cover of? It's a cover, this band called Indio did it originally. It's from the, I think the entire soundtrack of Into the Wild is Eddie Vedder solo stuff. And this was the, I guess the lead track from it. And I always like, for for a person who actually doesn't like Pearl Jam that much, I always loved that Hard Sun cover and and Low Light reminded me of Hard Sun. That's a great example of, I love when Eddie Vedder's voice is in that place. Yeah, right. He's not necessarily belting out, it's just that easier part of his voice but it's they're just such resonance in his baritone that uh like i i know he's gone in that direction in his solo career probably more so uh, well it's sort of like that talk sing that david leo pepe does sometimes right. too that where he's not talking but he's not full voice singing and he's he's in that lower part of his of his range there i think it sounds cool you know david, it sounds like you sounds like you're riding the track almost rather than singing it's hard for me to explain what what i'm saying but that's the way it feels that's a great compare david has that same thing where and he can get up there he can really he has quite a range in his voice but when he gets into that lower part of his baritone it has a similar kind of resonance as eddie better although i wouldn't say he's similar in his cadence or delivery but they both have that 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 voice that just cuts through the track or when you hear them live it just cuts through Mm-hmm. One other Both song Steve off. Hyden bands, by the way. Steve Hyden, a big oh, yeah? gang of youth guy. Yeah, big gang of youth guy, big war on drugs guy. Steve is a big Pearl Jam guy. We should uh, we should try to have him on. I mean, I yeah. think you mentioned him before. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I'll, I'll while we're talking, I'll send him a message. Cool. Uh, we'll have him on. <laughs> we'll have him on. Yeah, for sure. Anything else from the album? I had a couple more. One other highlight I had was in hiding. Uh, yeah, that was a single too. I'm, I'm trying to think of the singles from this album. The singles were Wishlist, Given to Fly. the ones I remember playing on YSP. Yeah, that's another one, a little closer to the classic Pearl Jam sound, but also kind of has a non-linear composition that actually makes it 
more engaging in some way. Mm-hmm. One of the best hooks on the album, I think, maybe the best. And I think that song, that hook in particular, but that song overall, really just exemplifies the sheer emotion intensity that Eddie Vedder can bring to his performances. It's just uh, when he goes up on that chorus and just cuts loose, that's powerful. And I imagine on the radio that had to probably get big reaction, big phones. Yeah, I mean, that was, by the time I was playing it, it was, uh, hmm, no, I guess it was when it was popular because if this album came out in 98 and I started at YSP in 99 on air, trying to think what That was your the, first year on YSP was 99? Yeah, I mean, I worked there starting in 96 or 97 or something as an intern, then a van driver, but then I got hired in like December 98 or January 99 or something like that. And then I'm trying to think the order of the... Uh, oh, so Given to Fly was the first single uh, released in December 97, was still in college. And then Wishlist is what I remember playing may of 98 so i wasn't i wasn't there when it was like current current but but afterwards but man that played seemed that like the biggest me. hit to me on, on uh, given to fly uh wish list I wish thought. list yeah wish list still gets played a lot wish list still gets played in hiding i think still gets played too i mean these albums are so big that songs that weren't singles and then radio wanted more singles and they didn't put out singles you know and played other songs decided to play other songs so the the only other album or the only other song on there like i mentioned the the punk sounding songs which i don't love but i think are cool that are on there which are like do the evolution Brain of Jay just comes out like swinging the album yeah. does. <laughs> and then the, the other song that I really love that you didn't mention is No Way. It's the third track on the album, and it's sort of like a groovier, mid-tempo track. And I, it's my favorite song of the album. I think it's like the most. It was the biggest earworm song of the album, and I like the the lyrics the most. Here's a token of my openness, of my need not to disappear. How I'm feeling is so revealing to me. I found my mind too clear. I just need someone to be there for me. And I thought it was, you know, a very you know, I like when I like when vocalists are what's the word I'm looking for? Vulnerable and honest and it, it feels that way. And it's such a like I just love the groove of the song. And for actually you mentioned that low light didn't feel like Pearl Jam. Like this is the one song of the album that sticks out to me as different than other songs in the album, I thought. And there are a number of moments like that that I think that's what makes this album special in a way. Yeah. Yep, you recognize sure. there's elements of the core Pearl Jam sound, but they're stretching way beyond it too. By the uh, way, the number one most streamed song on this album is "Do the Evolution" at forty on, on Spotify is forty seven really? million. Yeah, it goes "Do the Evolution" at forty seven million, "Given to Fly" at forty one, and then "Wish List" at thirty one million, and then everything else is much less than that. But but interesting that "Do the album Evolution" track, right? That's that yeah. wasn't like a singular. It was. You never not. know on streaming. You never know what people are going to gravitate towards. It's hard to predict. Right, and it might be a. I assume it's a live staple for them that song. So, you want to jump it into Smashing Pumpkins? So we have yeah, enough time yes. here.
absolutely. So Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream, you know, they are one of those bands that were grouped in with bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, though they are not from the same place and influence wise, I think are actually completely different, but they were part of the, you know, uh, everything gets lumped into grunge, even the things that aren't grunge. And it's, I, I almost want to get rid of the word grunge and just talk about early nineties rock because this era from like 88 to 94 was so special and narrowing it to grunge is, is really kind of almost unfortunate. So Siamese Dream came out in 93. Smashing Pumpkins are from Chicago and formed in the, the late eighties. And they are obviously centered around Billy Corgan, the the one person who has been there the entire time. They've gone through a lot of different lineup changes. Interestingly, the lineup now is incredibly close to the original lineup, just without Darcy Retsky. The original lineup, Billy Corgan, James Eha, Jimmy Chamberlain, Darcy Retsky. Um, and Darcy's out of the band, but a guy named Jeff Schrader, Schroeder, Schroeder, Schrader is, is in the band now. So they started just to your point about Pearl Jam, we don't need to do the, the <laughs> entire lineage of, of Smashing Pumpkins, but Billy Corgan was from Chicago, living in Florida, playing in a goth band and that band broke up and he moved back to Chicago and he was working in a record store and he met, uh, he met James Eha and they, Eha, Eha? Iha, Iha, they started, it's another name. He has a really cool solo album, by the way, which came out in the early 2000s, which is good after the James band. James Iha record. does? Yes, he does. So Billy Corgan was working in a record store and they started writing songs together. And before they even started writing songs together, Billy Corgan wanted to start a band called Smashing Pumpkins. They actually even played a show together, just the two of them. They started writing songs together. And after that show, is where they added Darcy and added Jimmy Chamberlain. And their first sort of like, they played shows and their first release was a single that got released on a, a compilation of Chicago bands. Then they ended up with a song on a compilation uh, that Sub Pop recorded. And then after that happened, they got signed to Caroline Records and recorded their debut album, Gish, uh, with Butch Vig. And Butch Vig is a just fucking... We, so we've many talked, records. Well, Nirvana, yeah. never mind, yeah. of course. But. Yeah, I mean, Nirvana, and he's in garbage, but like the, just the 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 number of albums that he has produced is, I mean, uh, Sonic Youth he's produced and Jimmy Eat World and like, he just hasn't, uh, against, he's got an incredibly long line of albums that he's produced. So they, uh, they released Gish and Gish is sort of like a minor alternative thing. And they had one song on that album, Rhinoceros, that got some uh, record label heat. So that happens. Then they get signed to Virgin Records, which had a, I think Caroline was like, like would upstream records to Virgin. Like sometimes smaller labels have that relationship with bigger labels. Um, at Fueled by Ramen had that at one point with Atlantic where they would, they were an independent label, but when things got too big for them, they almost had a relationship with a bigger label. So Caroline was related to Virgin in, in some way. I assume it was like that. And then after that happened, they got on some huge tours uh, before Siamese Dream even came out, toured with the Chili Peppers, actually toured with Guns N' Roses a little bit. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they decided to have Butch Vig produce the second record when it was time to record that. And they, they actually went to Georgia to record the album because one of the reasons was at the time, Jimmy Chamberlain, who ended up out of the band because of his drug problems, like one of the reasons they recorded it in Georgia was to get Jimmy Chamberlain away from that. And this was a notably, the recording of this album was notably chaotic, right? Uh, first of all, you know, moving a drug addict, a, a current drug addict away from a place not always all that successful and it wasn't with Chamberlain. So he found, shockingly, he found drugs in, in Georgia. Also, James Aha was dating Darcy Retsky at the time. So uh -huh. there's another element to it. And then, then Butch Vig decides, as he did on Gish, that Billy Corgan should be the one to play all the guitar and all the bass parts on, <laughs> on the album. Those yeah. three things that you just said are total... <laughs> Recipe for recording disaster. Right, right. If you want and, to create tension within a band, just those are the ingredients. Right. And there. interestingly, like they were sort of hated by 
bands that you would consider to be godfathers of this band? Like Husker Du shit on them and Pavement shit on them and like all sort of- Really? Yeah, all, all sort of accusing them of being, I, I think it's because the Pumpkins got bigger than those bands were commercially. And whether it was they don't deserve it or whether they're trying to be, you know, uh, corporate and successful, there was, and it certainly doesn't help. There's a quote I found from Billy Corgan. He said, even though it wasn't the one that sold the most, it's the one that seemed to have come to come through the best, that Siamese dream. As dark a record as Siamese dream is, there's a lot of fun in it. It's almost like we're kind of laughing about how stupid the whole thing is. It's like, here's my pop song about suicide. Here's my epic song about child abuse. And here's my big middle finger to the indie world. <laughs> uh, so he was, there was a mindset on his part of... yeah obliterating sort of that any pretension that there might have been yeah i mean and it to the i mean he's he's an interesting guy man i'm actually he's gonna i'm gonna meet him on thursday i think really? i've never met him before yeah he's doing a sh they have a new album coming out and they're doing a show at irving plaza a free show for uh alt 92.3 a station that we own here in in new york uh i work for odyssey and work and they're doing a free show and they're coming they're like hey do you want Billy Corgan to come into your morning show um, with Boomer and Geo. I was like, fuck, yeah, I do. And wow. um, big wrestling guy, uh, <laughs> Billy Corgan. So this album comes out and is just fucking massive. I mean, totally massive. Debuts at number 10, sells 4 million copies. They went on to re release after this album, Melancholy, Infinite Sadness, a double album that was bigger than this album was. I love uh, that record. That's my favorite album there and 1979 yeah is one on of my that favorite record. songs of that era and then adore and then just sort of like on and off with different lineups since then but a a monstrous a monstrous band and this album is monstrous i think you know revisiting it to get into this album i i was able to encapsulate what i love about it in in it feels like a mix between two bands and it feels like a mix between my blood, like two albums almost. My <laughs> Loveless from My Bloody Valentine. Ah, uh, yep, yep. And Def Leppard's Hysteria. <laughs> and I think if you go in thinking about those two albums, you will hear it. You even hear uh, a similarity. I, I know Billy Corgan is very particular in the way he sings, and he sounds like Billy Corgan. But if you go in with that mindset, you can even hear Joe Elliott in in how he sings sometimes, in his his tone and even in how he delivers words. And then the sort of wall of distorted sound that My Bloody Valentine had and that somehow his vocals seem similar to the My Bloody Valentine vocals at the same time. It's like this combination of this postmodern wall of Fender and, but it's got 80s guitar solos and amazing hooks and, you know, uh, and incredibly written songs, which My Bloody Valentine is a great band, but they don't, they don't have that part, right? That's never who they were. And that's what this album sounds like to me. And it's just such a fucking fantastic album from beginning to end with, and I don't love every song, but I, like, there's not really any misses on the, the album. And for me, you know, everyone knows the, the big singles were today. Disarm. Are the biggest singles on the record and they're both great songs but to me there's a, a three three song grouping that shows what i love about siamese dream and it is cherub rock
rocket. Those are the songs that like, you know, it opens up with Cherub Rock, which is both an amazing riff and a great hook and an amazing guitar solo with a band that like, if you're talking about the early nineties, that's not really what they were talking about. And somehow as a, a five minute song never drags and is a big sound while also having a lo-fi sound at the same time, you know? And I think Rocket does the same thing. And then Mayonnaise is just fucking beautiful. And with, I feel like a fool liking the lyrics because of what Billy Corgan said, but um, fool enough to almost be it and cool enough to not quite see it is a amazing, like, <laughs> turn of phrase. And those are the three songs that speak to me the most on this album, but man, you should really listen to this album in the car with the volume up because it is so like encompassing and enormous. So that's, there's a lot of me talking, but that's sort of how I felt. No, I'm with you. I love this album. It was nice to revisit this one. They were one of the first concerts I ever went to. Ah, really? Uh, Who did they play with? They Garbage was their support act. Ah. It was 1996 at the Spectrum. And it was one of the first big shows I ever went to, and we had my friend of uh, my friend and I went, and we had pretty good seats. We were like kind of just to the right of the stage, so we we're kind of like looking right down at the band. And first off, Garbage rocked it. I mean, yeah, I'd never, I wasn't that familiar with them, but they had a great set. And then just watching Billy Corgan and Smashing Pumpkins, first off, blisteringly loud. So <laughs> that was the first thing. I guess I I didn't at the time quite appreciate the. The level of just volume that happens at yep. at a big arena rock show, uh, but he's he's just such an interesting presence on stage, and I think something you know he, he's brilliant musically in what he does. One thing about these songs, and then I've seen him do just solo acoustic versions of some of these songs. These songs are so tightly constructed; you don't need yeah. all the production to get exactly what's happening. I mean, so like we always talk about, the best songs hold up. In mm-hmm. rawest form. That's absolutely the case. You touched on it earlier. The My Bloody Valentine thing, unmistakable. And mm-hmm. I'll just add on to that. I think the core parallel I see there is with My Bloody Valentine and with Smashing Pumpkins, there's that, I think, rare ability to make, to create like waves of distortion that, that provide a feeling of warmth. A lot of times, distortion is brittle. And I don't, mm-hmm. there's got to be a certain way, probably only the best producers and people who really understand how to get that sound in the studio can get it. But that's the main thing is that uh, when you listen to Loveless or you listen to this album, there's nothing brittle about the distortion, even though it's there. It's like It has like almost like a fuzz to it. Yeah, definitely a fuzz. A, a million percent, it sounds like fuzz and not overdrive. You know what right. I mean? Like it's a, a different kind of distortion. But it's rare. I mean, I can't, It's I'm hard pressed to think of a lot of other bands that can sound that can create that sound. So I think mm-hmm. that makes them distinctive. But of course, well-crafted pop song. Not pop songs, but yeah, there's pop song writing in this. Big hooks. There's more clarity in the vocals. Although you're right, there's something about Billy Corgan's voice that reminds me of the vocals in Loveless, even though in Loveless you can almost never decipher what's happening. Right, 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 right. Like, uh, the, love, My Bloody Valentine is making a decision to make it difficult. And I think right. Corgan is is taking taking features of My Bloody Valentine, but it does not have the same intent with this album, you know? Yeah. That they had with that album, I think. They were never trying to be on the radio. They were trying to totally, and these guys were, I think. You know, Mm -hmm. there was an intention there. I think you also mentioned it, that intro 
on Cherub Rock. It's about a minute long. Yeah. That's got to be one of the great album opening intros of all time. Without a single vocal, just the way that thing builds up yeah. to where he finally kicks in with the vocal. Mayonnaise, you mentioned that. You, uh, great minds think alike. All the same songs. Uh, you know, I think that song actually is a good example when you just production wise, purely production wise, of how close they are to My Bloody Valentine, actually. When well, you hear and it. it's, it, it's like, it's so, the, the clean guitar is so pristine. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's so perfect. It almost sounds like a piano. And I remember, I don't remember how to play it, but my guitar teacher, we, we learned that song and it's got a very funny, uh, funny tuning to it. I can't remember what it was, but it was a very different tuning to that. But like just an, an awesome song, like the quiet loud thing that the early nineties that, that you know, Nirvana made famous for or whatever, but it's such a cool song. Man, it's yeah, such and, a cool song. And they have their own version of loud, quiet, loud, yep. or quiet, mm-hmm. loud, quiet, however you want to break it down. One of my favorite moments, uh, there's some, just some of these songs stretch out. One of my favorite moments is that guitar outro on Hummer. Yes. It's a more understated part of the album, but there's just some beautiful guitar work. Now, I didn't know that Butch Vig decided <laughs> to have uh, only Billy Corgan. Now, I was always under the impression that was James Iha and Billy Corgan playing together. Maybe it is just Billy Corgan, but whatever's happening there guitar-wise, is, it's simple, and it just it's, it, it's one of those passages that I had to like listen to a couple times, just that last 45 seconds or so. Hummer brings back memories. Another, and I actually think Hummer fits in those songs that I had mentioned. It, it's not one of the big three in in my in my thought, but it does. It reminds me of freshman year of college. I had uh, <laughs> this friend on on my my floor at USC. His name was James. He was a funny guy, and I had a roommate that I didn't know. His name was Bill, and Bill was a big, sort of like hairy smelly, like he never showered or whatever. And, and James used to say that like, he smelled so bad that he was humming that there was actually noise coming from him. So we referred to Bill as the Hummer just in, in uh, reference to the Smashing Pumpkin song and, and his smell, which was so bad that it made a noise. Thus a smell that could actually break the sound barrier. Yes, yeah. Yep. It goes from smell into it can actually. There's yep. an audio dynamic yep. to it. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. I look at that song. Makes you think of that. It's yeah. Very, well, very, it's what it's what it, it just I, it reminds me of it. You know. Very so, specific. Very very yeah. specific. One of the today is obviously one of the big hits, but if you break down the lyric of that song, it's. There's something more there than just the obvious big radio hit. Yeah. I think actually one, it's one of his best vocals. When he's not going too hard into that like piercing side of his voice, when he just sings in kind of his natural part of his voice, he's actually a great singer in my opinion. It took me, when I first heard him, I didn't like his voice at all. Mm-hmm. And the more I listened to Smashing Pumpkins, I just, now I hear it and I dig it, you know, because he's unmistakably him. Yeah. But uh, even the lyrics on that song, Kind of a unique take on the live for today concept because you've heard that in other songs. Mm-hmm. But this one is about live for today because you're trying to escape a feeling of regret. Right. Which you don't always hear it framed in that way. He says, you know, pink ribbon scars that never forget. I tried so hard to cleanse these regrets. My angel wings were bruised and restrained. My belly stings. Today's the day. Today is the greatest day. You know, I mean, it's the way he gets to that idea lyrically is unique, I think, even though you've heard this kind of song written before. And I think it's beyond just the great production and big hook. There are lyrical moments on the record that I think speak to what a great songwriter uh, Billy Corgan is. Great video too. Incredibly memorable video of the ice cream truck in the desert. And then I think the album cover as well, iconic. You know, I actually both album covers of the ones that we that we covered today, Yield is such a- That's great. <laughs> a beautiful picture. Almost looks like something that would show up on a an iPhone billboard about how good the camera is. That's right. what like Yield looks like on the cover. And there's just something so memorable about 
the Siamese Dream cover with the two little girls on it, and and I, I I read the story about it at one point about who that was, and I don't remember it. Iconic. I mean, you yeah. see those. Yeah. You wonder, do album covers matter in the same way anymore? Because you know, think they of Nirvana. Don't. That's the best example. That one. Yeah, they don't, but they do to me. You know, let's see, Ali Langer and Lysandra Lys- Roberts are the two young girls featured on the cover of Siamese Dream. So there you go. And there's actually a picture of the two in Present 2018 oh, recreating wow. the cover. Oh, wow. Look at that. That's so nice. Anyway. Okay. Well, uh, two great albums. Two great- One day we'll get out of the 90s. Well, we do plenty of 70s <laughs> stuff thanks to you and plenty of 2000s stuff thanks to me and plenty yeah, of other yeah. decades. Yeah, we're covering decades, a range of decades. We're, we're all over 90s the 90s is one of the decades. It's a good decade. What do you want out of me? What do you want out of me? Um, it is. Actually, you know, it, it really is. A lot of great music came out of the 90s. So there's a lot to, it's a deep musical uh, well to mine, you know? We hope to see you at World Cafe, November 19th. Go to mootloosesounds.com for tickets. And uh, we would love to get an album from you. Once again, uh, the Apple Podcast Reviews, give us five stars or just go to carlandryrecordclub.com. We will talk to you next week. Stay free, my goose.